0: All right, we are back for another week in the world of Sasta with me, Harry Stebbings, and you can now see the guests coming up on the show the next week and suggest questions ahead of time for them. Also getting yourself a mention in the episode if the question's asked. And you can do that on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. It'd be fantastic to see you there. But to the episode today, and a guest I just loved having on the show the first time, so much so that I had to have him back on for a special round two. And so I'm thrilled to welcome back Bill Binch. Now, Bill is a leader and expert in the SAS sales industry, currently serving as CRO at Pendo.io, the startup that helps you understand and guide your users, creating a product experience they can't live without. And they've raised over $58 million in VC funding from some of the very best in the business, including the likes of Battery Ventures, Spark Capital, and Salesforce Ventures, all behind them. As for Bill, prior to Pendo, Bill was the Senior VP of Global Sales at Marketo for eight years, where he joined when it was a small venture-backed startup with a mission to reinvent marketing automation. It was his sales leadership and expertise that formed a critical component in building Marketo into one of the fastest-growing enterprise software companies in the world, recognized through his being awarded Worldwide VP of Sales in 2011. And I'd also have to say a huge thank you to Jason Lemkin for the intro, and Todd Olson, founder at Pendo, for the fantastic question suggestions today. But before we dive into the episode with Bill, when you're working, do you struggle with file version control or worry about sharing sensitive files both in and outside of your organization? My friends over at Ignite are solving these challenges and much more, they industry- industry-leading SaaS platform is reinventing the digital workplace, providing a single source of truth for all company content. That means increased employee productivity, more visibility and control for IT, and peace of mind for business leaders in a matter of minutes. And for those handling international data, Ignite fully supports GDPR compliance, helping you find and secure sensitive information to prevent harmful breaches and avoid penalties. And if you want to learn more about what Ignite has to offer, visit Ignite.com forward Saster. That's ignite.com forward slash. And thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, AmeriCommerce. AmeriCommerce is an e-commerce platform for high-volume online stores and complex products. It's powerful and pro-grade by design. With it, you can run one store or multiple stores with shared or separate inventory, manage wholesale and retail, customise for specific customers or scenarios, and more. Because of this, it's particularly attractive to mid-sized and larger businesses. And you can learn more at AmeriCommerce.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments like AmeriCommerce did, visit WePay.com forward slash Sasta. WePay's got this incredible cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's WePay.com forward slash Sasta. However, that's enough of these dulcet British tones, and I'm now thrilled to hand over to Bill Binch, CRO at Pendo.io. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Bill, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show for a second time. What can I say? I so enjoyed the first time that this was just a must-do with the move to Pendo. So thank you so much for joining me today, Bill.
1: Absolutely. I don't know if being a repeat contributor or a repeat offender is better or worse, Harry, but I'm excited to be on the show with you.
0: I think we should do repeat contributor for this case, Sam. But I would love to start with, for those who missed the first episode, a little on you, how you made your way into the world of SaaS and now came to be CRO at Pendo.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I had a traditional software upbringing after uh, finishing university of working for Oracle, PeopleSoft, and BEA, all big billion dollar software companies. And in 2007, saw the shift that was happening and made my move into a small company and was there for a short amount of time before it sold. And then was fortunate to be the 17th person to join Marketo and embarked upon nearly a decade journey with them after that. And so that was a great place to learn and really quite even help define some of the way that SaaS is sold and delivered today.
0: No, absolutely. What a journey it was. I do have to ask you, the incredible nine years spent at Marketo, seeing that scaling firsthand, what were the core takeaways that now, especially now you're at Pendo and in a smaller organization than the Marketo that you left, that you've taken with you and those transferable learnings?
1: Yeah, I think the key thing, Harry, there is that change is going to happen, and when I mean that, inside your organization, and it will be hard, but embracing that difficulty is really good because I look back at the marketo years and there are times when I own sales and all of customer success there are times that I gave renewals away to somebody and then I got it back there are times that I had biz dev and then I gave it away and then got it back there are times I had the channel there were times that I focused on SMB there are times I focused on international and those didn't always feel good those changes at the moment because it might have meant a new boss it might have meant a new organization maybe even one that was struggling and you had to go turn around But in looking back, the experience is just exceptional because having gone through that, I have the experience now. And so when I go talk to another organization, whether it's just helping advise somebody or like at Pendo, being a part of the team, I just bring such a wealth of experience that I was able to experience myself and bring the knowledge and the know-how from that. I love the element of
0: embracing the change. Incredibly tough to do though. I'm intrigued, what's that first step to embracing change?
1: Like I said, there's an old saying where, they say, check your ego at the door. And I think that's really important. You know, a lot of people refer to that Sheryl Sandberg statement about when she was joining Google and she was getting caught up on what the role and title would be. And Eric Schmidt famously said to her, you know, when you're being invited to ride the rocket, don't worry about the seat that you're in. And I think that's probably the toughest part. And the first thing that you have to do is if you're with a winning team, then the role you play, the contribution that you make is the secondary part. But being a part of a team that's there to win and want to be successful that's the number one thing that i think you need to be focused on
0: talking about that seat that you're in i'd love to start with the element that we discussed before being career paths you said that career paths are for b players so how can i not start on this and before maybe we address that
1: what is it fundamentally wrong or, or limiting with career paths today in sales Yeah, so let me start with a caveat that I at Pendo and I previously at Marketo and companies before that have a structured career path for people to be on. And the second caveat is I'm really speaking about the sales discipline right now. So, with those two out of the way, having a current career path and and having it focused on sales, what I'll tell you is that no one who is an A player really wants to go down that career path. Because, quite simply, and I'm going to paraphrase from a guy that works at Pendo right now, Dan Demas, who's our VP of customer success, is if you're good at what you do, then opportunity knocks and all you need to do is say yes. And that's why I say career paths are for B players. They're outlined for the vanilla. They're outlined for the generic path of what could happen. But Harry, if you're outstanding, if you're exceptional at what you do, there's no way you're going to stick to that path because people are going to come and ask you to do other things.
0: Can I ask, obviously it takes a huge amount of courage and risk to step away from the safety net of maybe a more structured career path and this you know can actually very much apply to you in terms of moving to pendo and assessing the opportunity but what characteristics or qualities would one look for in an alternative option that makes it that attractive rocket ship to step away from the traditional conventional career path
1: you know i'm going to use an analogy to a sport think about people that go skiing and often people say if you don't ever fall down then you're not trying hard enough and so the characteristics that i think you're going to want to look for is a steep learning curve. So take me, for instance. I just joined Pendo in January. I'm a little over four months in. And every day, it's like getting hit in the face with a door on the new things that I'm learning. And, you know, I'm 26 years out of university, Harry. So it's not like I'm a first timer at this stuff. But it doesn't mean that just having those years of experience makes it easier. It just means that you have more wisdom. And so for me, the characteristics that I think someone's going to look for in jumping off of a, a structured career path is, is this going to challenge me? Am I going to learn? Am I going to develop myself? Any of the one of those things that speak to intellectual curiosity, is this something that is going to be new to me versus is it some of the same old, same old?
0: Can I ask, Bill, personally, what have you found the biggest challenges in terms of scaling that learning curve with the move to Pendo?
1: Um, It's a great question because I often say, you know, I wish with my years of experience that it got easier, but guess what? The world moves, you know, the cloud business evolves, competitors get better, Your employees are smarter. They're doing more things today at an earlier stage in their career than they did maybe when I came out of school. So it's not an easy process to dive into and just say that, hey, I've been here and I've done that. Because what I just said there is you constantly yourself have to be learning. And so the biggest challenge is trying not to be the, the person that's the lecturer or the person that says you should do this or you should do that. But also being a student yourself while bringing a very, I think, collaborative style to an organization to try and drive things. And so what I've found is um, a really useful tool is to ask a lot of questions because I could very easily come in and direct and point people towards what the next thing should be. But I really find that people learn and take much higher level of ownership of things if they feel like they were part of the process for creating the, the idea or the solution. Can I ask,
0: how do you think about creating that culture of kind of ownership of decisions, but also not a fear of failing when maybe... Those ownership
1: don't pan out the way they should. You know that's hard because, admittedly, I'd say that one of my biggest weaknesses in the development of my career is that I felt I was a great delegator. But realistically, what I learned through you know some hard lessons, i.e., some three hundred and sixty feedback reviews and some very direct people talking to me, was that a lot of times I walked into a room with a decision made up where I wanted to go, and that a lot of times the team would just placate me because they knew that my decision was made up, and I truly. Wasn't searching for greatness. I truly wasn't searching for input. I was just driving to my agenda, and I had a thinly veiled veneer over that, and that you know people would kind of play to that at some point. And so it, it is a real challenge of how do you delegate? How do you go and challenge? And so you know, there's a phrase I use a lot, Harry, that I find when I have a strong opinion but I don't necessarily want to put it out on the table is I'll say, "What's going to come out of my mouth next?" And I'll just pause and I'll let that flow. Because at that point, it makes someone step step away and probably say, okay, whatever my point of view is, he probably has a different point of view. Let me see if I can walk a mile in his shoes. And I find that that provokes a, a different dialogue because instead of me saying what my thought is, and like I said, kind of being forceful or strong or directive, at that point, it, it lets the conversation continue as a two-way. And so that's the tool that I like to utilize.
0: Hey, you mentioned some of the team members at Pendo with you today. I had a great chat at talk- Todd Olson, CEO at Pendo, before this episode. And he spoke to me about your incredible experience transitioning from transactional businesses to enterprise businesses. So starting on this and with the benefit of, as you said, 26 years out of university, what have been the core learnings for you in making this transition really successfully now a number of times?
1: Yeah, that was one of the real attractive things about Pendo was the experience at Marketo was one where we created a, a marketplace. We created the market. We were one of several vendors that created the marketing automation space. And today, Pendo is similarly suited that it's not a replacement market. It's, again, defining a new category called product analytics. And so much like a lot of cloud and SaaS companies that start up, they start by focusing on the SMB first. And that's what Pendo's done for the last several years. And they're now looking at making that, that transition and that shift over to the enterprise. And so as, as Todd and I got hooked up together, I really started enjoying our conversations about where they were at and where they are looking to go. And so I've established this concept concept that I talk about internally called Growing Up Pendo. Growing Up Pendo is a whole company transition, Harry. And so let me break it down for you like this. We could be out selling a deal. And let's say we're selling a deal in Europe and they come and ask questions about our infrastructure. You know, obviously GDPR is a big topic going into effect this week. They could be asking about data sovereignty and where our servers are based. They could be asking about a lot of things that are part of the sales cycle. But inside of an organization like Pendo, I don't own the infrastructure and how our systems are run. That's someone over in our operations and engineering side. Likewise, someone could come and say, we want to open up your legal agreement and negotiate some of these terms. And I need to go drive through that process to come find a common ground for them and for us to be able to make a contract work. Again, part of the sales cycle, but not a component that I own. It's the legal aspect. And a last example is tech support, right? You know, someone could come and say, well, hey, what happens when I call you at 3 p.m. my time? And that's, you know, two in the morning time. Who picks up? How does that get handled? How does it get triaged? And I have to have a 24 by seven answer for them that may not be part of the sales motion, but is obviously important to us being able to win that deal. So the point of those three things, Harry, is I just talked about three things that are not sales and not marketing. They're all things that support it. And so the concept of growing up Pendo is about teaching this company how to sell enterprise, because all those things, data, sovereignty, GDPR, tech support by on a 24 seven hour, 24 by 7 basis and legal, you know, and open up contracts. Those are things that big companies, i.e. enterprise companies, are going to want to do. And so for us, it's much more than the heavy lifting that we have to do in the marketing and the sales motion, which I'm not making light of, is tremendous. To move from a transactional business to an enterprise business is tremendous there. But it's much, much more than just sales and marketing. And that's the mistake I think a lot of people make in looking at a transition. They think, oh, we're just going to go hire a bunch of expensive sales reps and suddenly we're going to catapult ourselves up into selling into the enterprise category. And that's just not accurate.
0: I actually had a guest on the show recently. You mentioned about starting an SMB and working up. I had a guest on the show recently that posited that it was easier to start enterprise and then go SMB because of the product functionality that you build out for enterprise being much more granular and detailed and the tech support team being built out much more succinctly. How would you respond to that top down versus bottom up analysis?
1: you got to compartmentalize it from a product perspective. There's probably a, a stronger case to be made that if you start with it big and then you know, start lifting Limiting functionality move downwards. That that's an easier motion. On a go to market side, I would vehemently disagree, and that'd be a great dinner or a, a wine conversation with that individual. The simple fact is is that the velocity motion is something about lather, rinse, and repeat, and the enterprise motion is about custom deal cycles. And to create that flywheel effect of being able to do something at high volume and high velocity takes a lot more discipline. I shouldn't say a lot more discipline. That's maybe not fair categorization but it takes a different type of discipline than doing it at the enterprise. I think that people that start in the SMB and grow themselves up to the enterprise tend to be much more successful than people in the selling motion again that start enterprise and try to move down
0: market. You mentioned the word velocity there. I have to ask is kind of high velocity and enterprise
1: deals not mutually exclusive or a paradox in themselves? Yeah, you know, I mean you look at some companies like Salesforce and they do I think big deals at a fairly high velocity. But if you think about how many SaaS companies are over 5,000 employees, I mean, there's, you know, there's, a hand, there's the big four, right? There's Microsoft, Oracle, SAP, and Salesforce is kind of the, the four horsemen of that category. But after that, you know, the number of companies over 5,000 employees gets much smaller. So, you know, it's not mutually exclusive, but I do think that most companies today are thinking about that there's a distinct motion that they have to build for the velocity biz and that there's a separate and equally distinct motion that they build for the enterprise side.
0: Can I ask for you as the CRO at Pendo, kind of uh, making that move from SMB to enterprise, how do you think about internal asset allocation and and how you kind of prioritize functions with
1: the move upstream? Well, this goes back to what we started on, that don't be afraid to embrace the change because things that you do today are not going to be things that you do tomorrow. You know, in an SMB world, you might have pricing up on your website and then you find later that that's difficult because it sets a precedence in some one's mind and so all of a sudden you have a big enterprise company come in where you're going to go run a six or nine or a 12-month cycle and to go back to pricing on a website you know is hard because they come back and say well you know isn't it based on x y and z that you've posted here whereas at that point when you're doing that six or 12-month sales cycle you're really selling against a value proposition as opposed to you know a technology proposition yeah absolutely
0: in terms of the move upstream we discussed before about kind of being self-aware of your own organization. How do you think about the changing internal structure, maybe specifically to sales teams, when you make the move from SMB to enterprise? And
1: what are those core hires? Yeah, so just from the moves before I talk about the hires, I think, you know, it is it is a journey. And I think the big thing is when you're in an SMB or a transactional world, you think about things in terms of weeks and months. And therefore, you tend to put your investments of people and, and dollar resources towards that. Whereas when you start thinking about going upstream, it moves to much more of a quarterly, or an annual type of viewpoint, which means that when you make investments, Harry, your ROI is slower to achieve. And that's tough. That's tough, right? Because if you've built your business on a week and month cadence, and you're used to seeing return in a couple of months, and then you start doing things that are longer term focused, meaning longer term deals, bigger deal sizes, more expensive sales reps, those take longer to pay off. And so you've got to have that ability to weather that time frame and that change because people get anxious and start getting worried. So from our- resource perspective of the people, it's very typical to go and build a repeatable motion for your your down market or your SMB team. And that tends to be people that are newer and younger in their career, meaning they've gotten there. And they're looking for lots of guidance. They're looking for a very structured process. They're looking for sales methodologies and things that they're going to take with them to their next jobs. And then uh, the people on the other side of that, on the enterprise side, tend to be people with, you know, 10, 15 plus years, of experience out of school and they're focused on a a different type of act, right? They're not necessarily coming to you to look to get that sales methodology training or, you know, the negotiation training because they've probably been through it. What they're looking to do is take their skill set and apply it to an organization to go be successful and win.
0: You mentioned the people element there and kind of internal personal trajectories. I'm really intrigued in terms of kind of building out that sales team before you left me on a cliffhanger and it's one that actually I've been meaning to ask you for about 18 months so I'm thrilled to have the chance today. You said you've got to
1: rig the recruiters. What did you mean when you said rig the recruiters? Yeah. So the idea is, is if you're a young software company getting going, you probably have very little brand recognition. And if you go knock on the door of any recruiter to get talent and say, "I want your A plus people," well, you're unproven to them. And so you've got to find a way to prove yourself. And so I think there's a couple of things where you have to make your own rules to sit there and just say, "I'm going to come in and I'm going to pay a recruiter the standard fee." Well, hell no. You can't do that. If you want to truly get A-plus talent, then you're going to have to go pay for it. And and so to me, the idea of rigging the recruiters was back in the early days of Marketo, the first thing I did, since we had no brand recognition as a company, was I went and offered a higher percentage rate for their people. And so that got their attention on, okay, these guys are willing to pay to play. And then number two is you need to create some volume. You need to hire more than one person because if you think about a recruiter, they're just like any other business. They want to go back to their existing customers because those... are easier customers to sell generally and do repeat sales to them. And so what I had to do was put a motion in place that A, I was going to pay them more and B, I was going to make it so that it was a continuous process. And that was the concept of rigging the recruiters. It was essentially me coming up with a concept of of how I was going to go get their attention. And the last thing that I did was an internal thing, which was I put some incentives in front of my sales team that they could then go and overachieve. And by overachieving, they could go proudly boast that they had earned this money. And that gets the attention of those recruiters as well, because a recruiter is looking to place a top talent in a place where they can make money. And if you've got the internal people telling you that they've got that going, that they're making their numbers and overachieving on their earnings, then you're going to kind of build upon that success. Speaking of them kind of
0: hitting their targets and signing those logos, I'm intrigued because before we discussed the element of kind of onboarding new customers, and you said about the importance of getting as many customers on board as fast as possible for the confidence of the team, how do you think about this when building out a team in the much
1: slower enterprise space where deal cycles are much longer? So first of all, I'd say that I think most SaaS companies today come out of the gates and have some focus on SMB and don't focus just exclusively on the enterprise. There are those companies that do that, and that's a little bit of a different place. But, you know, I first of all think about the goal is to build your base with logos. There's a circle of life, to use a cheesy term, that I think is beneficial to any company that getting logo helps with, which is number one, it gives confidence to the sales team that they have a product that's sellable and that they can close deals. Number two is it hands that off to the customer success team and they get experience turning customers on to the product and enabling them and seeing what components are in use from the customer. That then provides feedback downstream to the developers who can then now say, okay, let's tweak our product to go in this direction or in this other direction. And then that goes back to the top of that funnel, which is marketing to say, hey, this product is being built for this purpose. So we need you to message and kick up the dust around that. And so, like I said, I think the benefit of if you, if you sell logos is that the whole company wins. That energy of closing business becomes contagious across the entire organization. And so, I'm not sure there's a way that you can shorten an enterprise sales cycle, if that's the focus that you go, other than just you know being aggressive about wanting to get logos on board. It.
0: I completely agree. There are elements, though, that people often cite as kind of tipping people over the edge, one of them being pilots, another being discounting. On the- pilot element what are your views on pilots
1: and what one should really be looking to drive in those engagements yeah i think there's a difference between a pilot and a trial to me, a trial is someone saying, I want to test your software and kick the tires." So that to me is a technical evaluation and it tends to be fairly short. You know, hey, you you say your product does this, I want to prove it. And so give me access to your software and let me do it. That to me is a trial versus a pilot to me tends to be much more value focused. A pilot is your company's product does the following functionality, but there's some type of benefit statement that your company company has a mission to deliver inside of their customers. And I want to see some of that mission come through. And that's to me what a pilot is. So a trial to me is technical. It's shorter term. A pilot is something that's a little bit longer term is how I really think about that. And I think the key of either one of those for both the vendor, as well as the buyer is to have mutually agreed upon success criteria. If you just start a trial or a pilot and there's no criteria of what defines success, it's kind of like me asking you, Harry, to go put your Running shoes on and your workout gear, and saying, "Hey, here's the starting line. Get ready to run." And you, you ask me, "Well, Bill, is this a sprint? Is it a 5K, a 10K, a marathon? What is this?" And I'll go. I'll let you know when you get there. That just doesn't feel very good. And so, I think mutually agreed success criteria is the real critical thing. Whether you do a trial or a pilot, I've got a terrible image of you coaching me around a running track right now, Bill. So let's <laughs> erase
0: that. Let's erase that from my mind by moving swiftly to discounting the other element that can help in tipping people over the line. What's your thought? on discounting. And I had someone again on the show who said that
1: discounting today is table stakes. Would you agree with this? You know, I think it's very common. Look, I look at it like this. You start your business and you're in a logo pursuit and you're looking for experience of people using your product. And so if that's giving it away, doing beta programs, giving charter discounts, you know, where they're really deep just to get people on board, I think there's a mindset. But then from there, I think you evolve over time to value selling. And what I mean by that, Harry, is you know we're all used to people coming and wanting to buy a product, and they obviously want to get the best price possible. But remember, you have uh, if you're a vendor, you have the cost of founding the company, of developing the product, of staffing the go-to-market team, and then all the supporting organizations. And so you have to sell your product for a fair price. And to sell it based on user base or seat base or something like that might not be the, the best way to extract value. Value might be coming and saying that, hey, i drive top-line growth and by using my product, we think you'll drive X percent more or we give you bottom-line savings. Those are the two most common value props that companies do and they do that by all types of different things, by getting you more leads, by giving you greater visibility into what your business is doing and being able to you know, help you assess how your customers are using your product, all different things like that that could be useful in building some type of value selling price to them. Can I ask, in a time when discounting is an acceptable measure, can I ask,
0: when is that that stage of company life when actually it's quite a persistent and usual element of business and by how much is traditional do you think often
1: oh i think that most companies are fairly driven from a time frame perspective and so the classic software world is that you see things at the end of quarter where you know people get more aggressive because they want to close up a big quarter so i think the quarterly focus is still alive and well and exists out there from that perspective the other real i think driver for that is competition is they're very few markets out there where there's not good competitors out there that have a um, similar product to you that you're competing against. And so from that point, you know, the competitors together sometimes set kind of what you'd call the basement prices for the market.
0: But I would love to dive into my favorite element, Bill. You know it. You've done it before. The 60 seconds faster. Are you ready? 60 seconds per statement. I'm ready to go. So the sales process from naught to a million.
1: I would say any deal at any cost. That goes back to what I was saying about beta trials, getting Charter customers, whatever it is, you just want people using your software so that you have stories, that you have customer success tales that you can tell, that you have references that you can go on to take to the next buyer, and that you have some metrics that you can measure the impact that your product had on their business. Would
0: you agree with Jason Lemkin when he says that as when you start paid marketing, as long as you get a dollar back for every dollar you spend, you'll be positive with the blended in mind? Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that. The sales process from
1: one 10 million. Transactions. That to me is the business of building something that people see that you have a marketplace because being in a niche is no good. If you are a sample size of one, then you better be doing something incredibly innovative that the world can't live without because it doesn't matter if it's you can use, you know, uh, Ford to Toyota, you could use Uber to Lyft, you could use any Coke to Pepsi, any variable out there in the world. If there's a good product out there, there's a second. Good product as well. And so to me, that one to $10 million space is about building that marketplace and getting customers to use your product.
0: And then the space that you'll soon be entering with
1: Pendo, the sales process from 15 to 100 million. Yeah, this to me is the, the area where you're going to look for customer expansion. This is where you're going to leap beyond looking at getting new customers onboarded and start looking to how do you grow inside of your current customer base? Because that's, I think, an imperative to being a successful company and making it through that 15 to 100 million dollar range. I think at that stage, you've got to be thinking about what your next act is in terms of what other products can you go back to your current customers and sell. I think you've got to be thinking about how you expand inside of those customers. And I think that's where you're truly, truly getting the value statements that I talked about back from your customers. That's where you want to have people standing on the stage at your conference or your summit talking about the impact that you've had on their business. That's, um, that's real success to me. Bill, what keeps you up at night? You know, Harry, there's a an old concept of a thought called groupthink that people have talked about, where a group can get themselves spun up around a topic. I think that's evolved. I think that there's a concept called teamthink, which is how do you match up the thoughts of an individual with an organization? Because I think this world move so fast right now, information so abundant that people are very fast to have a bias to act which is great. That happens to be one of Pendo's cultural values is have a bias to act. But to get that bias to act to work in conjunction with what the top line mission of the goal or top line mission of the team is and aligns with the goal of that team, that takes work. That takes a tremendous amount of communication. So what keeps me up is getting the team to all think in a similar manner. And, and remember when I said earlier in the show here, a thing that, that I say, you know, oftentimes when I want someone to really think about a topic is what's going to come out of my mouth next. It, uh, it just gets them to a place where if they can start anticipating you with a fair amount of accuracy on what your actions would be in that situation. Then that means that a team is cohesive and you know you could use a million cheesy sports analogies talk about different teams and whatever sport they wanted, but essentially what you see in teams that win is it's not just one individual who's really awesome you see a collection of individuals that are really really good at what their their specific role is
0: well who doesn't love a cheesy sports analogy but i want to finish today on the final question being what do you know now bill that you wish you'd known now you can take a a couple of different options here it could be from your time starting with with Marketo as employee number 17 from 26 years ago. But what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of dot, 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 given choice?
1: You know, there's a there's a couple of things that, that jump out at me. I think there's a different mindset of people and how it's going to work in uh, an environment today. I think an organization exists when both the company and the employees have a good balanced state of equilibrium. And what I mean by that is that as an employee, I'm getting growth, I'm getting opportunities given to me, me, where I can go and build my career from the organization. And likewise, the company's getting great output from you. And as long as those stay in balance, that's good. I, I wish I'd known that earlier in my career, as opposed to having this kind of what I'd call antiquated idea that people are going to come in, they're going to sign on, they're going to be loyal to you forever. Um, I just think that there's a different mindset in today's world. And I think that I've learned a few things along the way. One thing I learned from a great guy named Patrick Donnelly, who was with me at Marketo for about five years, was you know let's just be real about about that you know I'd much rather have a person that works in my organization come to me and express that they're frustrated express that they're thinking about considering other options than just surprising me because that at least gives me the opportunity to try and repair what they want to see and if I can make that happen that's great if we don't agree and I can't make that happen then at least I know what was coming down the road and what was going to be around the next corner and so I just think about people management and you know kind of like I said the old view that you know someone going to come work for you and be loyal forever. I think that's just a, an outdated concept. And I think that tuning into people and trying to set expectations for what their next 12 months can look like, being on that same page and kind of agreeing that we're going to live in this one-year view of the world of what's good for me right now, what's good for the company right now. And if those things align, then you know this is a good place for both of us.
0: Well, Bill, you know I always love chatting, but I can't thank you enough for putting up with my dulcet British tones for a second time. I've so enjoyed it. So thank you so
1: much. Absolutely. Thanks very much for having me, Harry. Bye.
0: Again, a huge thanks to Bill for giving up the time today to come on the show. Such a pleasure to have him back on and a big thank you to Jason Lemkin for the intro and Todd Olson for the fantastic questions today. If you'd like to see more from us and jump behind the scenes at Sasta, you can on Instagram at hdebbings1996. It'd be fantastic to see you there. But before we leave you today, when you're working, do you struggle with file version control or worry about sharing sensitive files both inside and outside of your organization? My friends over at Ignite are solving these challenges and much more. They're industry-leading SaaS platform is reinventing the digital workplace, providing this single source of truth for all company content. That means increased employee productivity, more visibility and control for IT, and peace of mind for business leaders in a matter of minutes. And for those handling international data, don't worry, Ignite fully supports GDPR compliance, helping you find and secure sensitive information to prevent harmful breaches and avoid penalties. And if you want more information, you can find out more of what Ignite has to offer by visiting ignite.com forward slash SASTA. That's ignite.com forward slash sasta And thanks to my friends at WePay. Let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, AmeriCommerce. AmeriCommerce is the e-commerce platform for high-volume online stores and complex products. It's powerful and pro-grade by design, meaning with it, you can run one store or multiple stores with shared inventory or separate inventory, manage wholesale and retail, customize for specific customers or scenarios, and more. Because of this, it's particularly attractive to mid-sized and larger businesses. And you can learn more at americommerce.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, just like AmeriCommerce did, visit WePay.com forward slash Sasta. And WePay's got this fantastic cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's WePay.com forward slash Sasta. As always, we so appreciate all your support, and I cannot wait to bring you next week's Sasta episode.